0: Chapter 12 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A.D. Latheron. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 12 The Personality of the Playwright. In all the arts, a distinction may be drawn between works which are objective and impersonal, and works which are personal and subjective. Creations of the former type seem to have sprung full-grown from their creators' minds, like Athena from the forehead of Zeus, and to exist thereafter as independent entities, whereas creations of the latter type come trailing clouds of glory from the minds that made them. It is the merit of certain works of art that they tell us nothing about their makers, But it is no less the merit of others that they tell us a great deal it would surely be uncatholic to exalt one type above the other and no comparison between them should be made for any purpose less disinterested than that of definition all art that is inefficient is impersonal either because the artist has no personality to reveal or because he lacks the power to reveal what personality he has so that the distinction made above becomes valid only between the worthy works of worthy men. Only when art has risen to the level of efficiency can the question arise whether the artist shall strive to keep himself out of his work, or to put himself into it. Of these two endeavours, the former is the more admirable from the technical standpoint, but the latter is more engaging from the standpoint of humanity. There is no denying that the supreme and perfect works of art belong to the impersonal, objective type. We do not know who made the Venus of Melos, and assuredly we do not care. The nameless sculptor may have been young or middle-aged, he may have been athletic and sociable, or ascetic and morose. He may have loved drink, or he may even have been a vegetarian. The Venus does not tell us, and we do not want to know. We read the Iliad and the Odyssey, without really caring whether Homer was a man or a syndicate of balladists. The perfect works of architecture, like the Doric Temple at Pestum, the Roman Corinthian jewel box at Nîmes, the Saint-Chapelle at Paris, or the King's College Chapel at Cambridge, are entirely impersonal. They tell us a great deal about the epoch that inspired them, but nothing about the architects who designed them. In modern fiction, the most accomplished artists have worked impersonally, Jane Austen keeps herself out of her novels, and the short stories of Guy de Maupassant are utterly objective. What sort of man wrote La Perreur? We may answer, a great artist, but that is all. So in the drama we find that Oedipus King tells us nothing about Sophocles, and though the keenest of English critics, Walter Badgett, tries to induce a sense of Shakespeare's personality from a study of his plays, and later critics with less sound and more inventive minds have pursued the method to extravagant extremes we notice that one of all his plays which is the finest technical achievement i mean of course othello tells us next to nothing about shakespeare but if art at its most perfect is impersonal we must admit that the obtrusion of the artist's personality in works that rank only a little lower than the highest is often an amiable imperfection when ulysses is discovered by the maidens of naushka it would trouble us if we had to think of the author as a blind old man but to take an instance of the other type unless we do think of the author as a blind old man we shall lose most of the poignancy and pathos of the opening of the third book of paradise lost we prefer chaucer to spencer not because he is a finer artist for he is not so fine but because he reveals to us a more affable and human personality Artistry, after all, is less appealing than humanity, and Addison, who is an artist, interests us less than Pepys, who is a man. If artistry were everything, there would be no excuse for preferring the work of Giotto, who cannot draw hands and feet, and whose perspective goes awry, to the work of Guido Reni, who is a practiced and accomplished painter. But Giotto makes us love him so much that we overlook his inequalities of craftsmanship, and Guido bores us to such an extent, by his conventional, vulgar mind, we are almost tempted to resent his skill in draughtsmanship. Mr. Howells, who is himself an objective artist, and therefore an apostle of impersonality, comments adversely on Thackeray's tendency to stand about in his scene, talking it over with his hands in his pockets, interrupting the action, and spoiling the illusion in which alone the truth of art resides, and condemns him as a writer who had so little artistic sensibility, that he never hesitated on any occasion great or small to make a foray among his characters and catch them up to show them to the reader and tell him how beautiful or ugly they were and cry out over their amazing properties this statement explains readily enough the grounds on which thackeray must be regarded as a less accomplished artist than jane austen or than mr howells himself but it fails to explain why most of us would rather read thackeray we return to the newcomes again and again not so much for the pleasure of seeing London in high society in the early nineteenth century, as for the pleasure of seeing Thackeray see it. And it is precisely in those moments of amiable imperfection that Mr. Howells has stigmatised that we find ourselves nearest to Thackeray, and therefore nearest to our source of pleasure. When Mr. Brownell, in his marvellous destructive criticism of the short stories of Hawthorne, laid bare their weaknesses as works of art, He lost sight of the fact that our real reason for liking them is not because they are works of art, but because they are written by Hawthorne, and that to reveal the weaknesses of a man we love will only make us love him more. It is in this way that imperfect artists with engaging personalities get around the critics. In the contemporary drama, we are confronted by artists of the one type and the other, and it is difficult to choose between them. For instance, we have been shown a great example of objective art in The Thunderbolt, and a great example of subjective art in Alice Sit by the Fire, and all that may be said of the critic who would judge between them is that, although Sir Arthur Piniero is incontestably the greatest artist among contemporary English writing dramatists, Sir James Barry is nevertheless the best beloved among them. The wonderful thing about Pinero's characters is their apparent independence of their creator. But the wonderful thing about Barry's characters is the sense that they give us at all moments that they are creatures of his amiable mind if we adopt for a moment the familiar definition of art as life seen through a temperament we shall notice that pinheiro emphasises the life we are looking at and that barry emphasises the temperament we are looking through all that pinheiro values is the relations of his characters with each other but barry values more intensely the relations of his characters with himself barry appears not only as the author of his plays but also as the chief of all the auditors He sits beside us during the performance and nudges us or takes our hand at this moment or that to make sure that we share his own delight at the unfolding of his comedy. But while we are looking at the play by Pinheiro we feel that the author has gone home to bed and forgotten all about it. Of course Barry's habit of taking us into his confidence would annoy us as much as Mr. Howells is annoyed by Thackeray unless we were fond of Barry but as it is we feel a personal favour that he should come to the performance with us and let us see it through his eyes. We like Barry, and that is the sole and all-important reason why we like to see his plays. He may make a good play, like the admirable Crichton. He may make a bad play, like Little Mary, but we enjoy them almost equally, because he enjoys them, and has won us to enjoy what he enjoys. But in the case of an impersonal artist like Pinheiro, we lose interest unless he has fashioned for us an admirable work of art. When he writes The Wife Without a Smile, we will have none of him, and the fact that he must have liked to write it does not influence us in the least. Barry, no doubt, is the spoiled child among our dramatists. If he chooses to construct badly, we let him have his way, for the illogical and overwhelming reason that he is Barry and we love him. As for Pinheiro, we cannot tell from his works whether we love him or not. All that we can tell is that we admire and appreciate his art. He keeps himself out of his plays, because, as an artist, he does not regard himself as a factor in them. Sir Arthur once told me in conversation that he personally loved the characters in Mid-Channel and the Thunderbolt, but he has carefully concealed from his public the fact that he loves them. To the average audience, those twisted and exacerbated people seem unlovable, and the audience infers that, if anything, the author must have disapproved of them but on the other hand barry parades his fondness for his characters so that sometimes we see his fondness more clearly than we see the characters as in looking at andrea del sato's paintings of lucrezia we see his wife less vividly than we see the haze of sentiment with which he had haloed her in actual experience all canons of art or lack of art fall down before the potency of personality After years of technical analysis have convinced us that Burke writes great prose and Lamb writes imperfect prose, we find ourselves returning again and again to the dissertation on roast pig, although we have no interest in the origin of cookery, and to Mrs. Battle's opinions on whist, although in these days of auction bridge we have lost interest in the simpler game, merely because Charles Lamb is stammering and chortling through them, and we love Charles Lamb. The appeal of personality is unreasonable and therefore as irresistible as the love of woman and criticism in dealing with personal subjective works must therefore cast reason to the winds and estimate only the affection they evoke End of chapter twelve